Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Jana Linet, AICP. Jana is a Senior Strategic Policy Advisor for AARP's Public Policy Institute as part of their Livable Communities team. She has a background in transportation and land use, which she brings to her work on mobility, particularly for older adults. She was responsible for the development of AARP's groundbreaking Livability Index, a first-of-its-kind online tool to measure how well every neighborhood in the U.S. meets residents' needs. Jana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's jump right in. The Livability Index was first launched in 2015. Four years in, how is it working as a tool? Well, that's correct. We launched our Livability Index in April of 2015 at the American Planning Association Conference in Seattle. And we really built this tool as one that community advocates, city planners, elected officials, others could use to get a better kind of eyeball sense of their community and how livable it was across several different categories of livability. So we're looking at um, housing, neighborhood, transportation, environment, health, opportunity, um, and All of these things come together to create a total score. So we've got more than 50 indicators within the Livability Index, and each of those you can get a a score for your category of of livability, such as opportunity, or you can get a total score and just look indicator by indicator at how your community performs. So we really put this together as a tool to help people start those community conversations about how they can... um, create change in their community, make their communities more livable, um, trying to raise the profile of thinking about older adults in the planning process. Uh, But really the tool is a tool for all ages. Um, We have certain measures that are selected because of our being AARP and putting more emphasis than perhaps other tools may. So for instance, we we measure housing accessibility um, as well as transit accessibility. But it really is a tool for all ages and defines livability very broadly. And since we launched this in 2015, we have done a policy update. So we have 40 metric indicators measuring what's on the ground today using a lot of census data and other data sources. And then we have 20 policies that give us an idea of If these policies are passed and get implemented, this is the potential for uh, community livability growth moving out into the future. So we updated those policies um, in 2017, and just this past June, we updated the entire index, all 60 indicators within that. So So it's been out four years with a recent update. I'm wondering if if you found any surprises in the way people use it. There have been surprises. I would say um, we are learning that 
there are planners that are using it as part of a metric or kind of benchmarking within their comprehensive plans, or we've heard of folks using it to do audits, neighborhood audits, because what is very unique about the livability index is it goes down to that census block group level. So you can really get a sense um, for 21 of the indicators what's happening at that neighborhood level. And probably one of the biggest surprises, there was an article that came out in a I don't remember which newspaper, but it was covering the military, the Army, deciding where to set up a command center. And it was actually looking at the livability score of different cities and decided to go to Austin, which is one of our top performing cities in this last round in the livability index, as opposed to Detroit, which scored lower. So that's it's not necessarily the outcome that we were looking for, for um, how the tool would be used, but it's interesting that... Um, people are taking it seriously and um, making major decisions for business and, and investment off of the livability index. You mentioned it was launched at uh, an APA national planning conference. AARP and APA have worked together in several areas. I know one of them is in the arena of housing and accessory dwelling units. Can you tell us a little bit more about that collaboration? Yeah, back in 2000, uh, AARP and APA put together uh, an accessory dwelling unit guide, um, and just this past year we began a collaborative effort to update that guide, and we'll actually be putting out as part of the upcoming um, APA conference um, some more information, including a toolkit design guidelines for how to build accessory dwelling units. So as part of the products coming out of this collaborative effort, there'll be a new design guide that will be presented at the APA conference in April. You know, it makes so much sense that AARP and APA would work together, but sometimes those partnerships and collaborations don't come easily. Um, I know that you have a background in planning, and I'm curious how you found your way to the profession. Well, I guess when I was looking at graduate programs, I was definitely interested in environmental studies. Um, and what I found in talking with folks is that planning was an opportunity to really get some very practical skills building and be able to apply it toward the type of work that I was really interested in. The other thing I was very interested in was um, conflict resolution and working in collaborative processes and communities. And so I chose to attend the University of Virginia because of an internship with the Institute for Environmental Negotiation. So about halfway through that internship, what I realized is that I'm actually probably too passionate about these issues to be the perfect mediator. Um, and so I took my career down a slightly different path and have been more of more of a planner. Um, now I'm in more policy uh, type of work, research, writing, um, but I did work as a planner um, for many years, um, both in land use planning as well as in transportation planning. So I've always seen the importance of bringing those two fields of planning together to really solve problems. Many people may only know AARP for, you know, the letter that comes once you're eligible for membership or the great magazine you guys put out. Tell us how the organization has evolved and some of the work of the Livable Communities team. 
Uh, that's a great question. First, I just want to make the comment that I usually can guess at the age of the person by the reaction to my being introduced as a representative of AARP. Um, almost unanimously, those from the great generation, sort of our older old, wear their AARP membership badge very proudly and really see our value. But I think boomers and Gen Xers are more hesitant and kind of embarrassed by that letter. So we still have work to do to really get our message out there about what we're doing in the lives of people of all ages. And really where a lot of that work uh, shows up is now at the local level. Um, Originally, AARP was formed as a national organization, really dealing on federal policy issues. And, you know, after about 40, 45 years of being an organization, um, we started opening an office in every state. And so that really happened. That process was completed around the first decade of this century. And more recently, the organization has begun to put a lot more resources into going local um, because we see that people really first encounter um, you know, the issues are, are most local that people feel, and um, we do want to play in that arena. So our Livable Communities team is um, quite diverse. We have folks like myself in the Public Policy Institute focused more on policy-level uh, research, and we have folks in our advocacy department who are pushing state legislation. Um, we're providing technical assistance to uh, local officials um, through our age-friendly communities program and other ways that we reach out into the community. We, we work very closely with uh, our staff from state offices to um, get the word out on, on livable communities and try to create value at a local level. Yes, some work I do here with the Chicago Department of Transportation um, around Vision Zero, the the local chapter of AARP is a very strong partner, and it was a member of the staff there who let me know we don't say senior anymore. Um, so let's talk about the importance of language and how today's older adults may be different than generations past. Sure. You know, language is very important. I think um, what we name a, an age group is we're never going to feel comfortable with that term until we address our own thinking and, you know, the degree of age discrimination and age bias in society. We'll just keep moving on to the next term because one gets worn out. So I don't know that there's anything necessarily, you know, wrong with using the word senior, um, but it's, it feels a little worn out. We've moved on to older adults for the, the time being. But I think the bigger question of language is really thinking, like, what is the language that we use in thinking about aging and the aging of our society? You know, so often we hear about the age tsunami as if the aging of society is some catastrophic event, and it's really not. It's about, you know, we're living longer. Um, for many, we're living healthier. Um, there's huge opportunity by connecting the resources that older adults bring to their communities, um, to you know, intergenerational type of projects, et cetera. So that it's a, it really is a huge opportunity, and we need to think uh, through our language about the biases that we have and try to combat some of those. And that's something AARP has been 
very involved in with American Society on Aging and other organizations to, um, it's called Disrupt Aging, and really to try to combat those biases. So what are some specific ways that today's older adults may be different than generations past? Well, perhaps it's a little more accentuated, though I think it's always been this case. None of us as individuals necessarily acknowledge that we're aging and that we're undergoing change. Um, We tend not to really wrap our heads well around what aging may mean for us as individuals and for our families until we're really confronted with um, some situation that forces it upon us. So most of us don't really imagine the year when we may have to hang up the car keys and retire from driving. Um, But if you look at just sort of the national average, um, we outlive our driving years by 7 to 10 years. Um, And so most of us who are lucky enough to live past age 70 are going to have a period in life where perhaps the way we've always gotten around is not going to be the way we get around in the future. And so what we're constantly struggling with is to try to get the focus to be, you know, into that future and how do our communities need to plan and change in order to make sure that all of us, regardless of age, can live, you know, the best possible lives in our communities. That's really the goal and mission of AARP as an organization. Yeah, it strikes me as another, frankly, sad example of in the built environment and people who affect change in community, there's there's things that seem at the same time easy and difficult. Um, and so quality of life is one of those categories where, you know, you hear the term age in place and you might read something that says, well, make sure you have benches every X number of feet. But so there's like easy things that can be done, but it still seems so difficult. This really struck me when I was a new mom. Obviously, I navigated my neighborhood and city in a much different way. And of course, it forced me to realize what it's like when people don't shovel their sidewalks or what it's like to feel a bit isolated if you don't know your neighbors. Um, so I really appreciate that while AARP you know, primarily serves a particular demographic, any of the recommendations they make are in the name of improved quality of life for any age. Yeah, that's correct. I think it comes back to the notion of universal design in that if we're doing good design, then differences are really not limitations, that everyone can use the environment in a way that is very enabling. And I think one of the things that I've learned since I joined AARP about 11 years ago um, as staff is from working with our colleagues in the disability rights community and reframing how we we think about community design. And we as planners need to stop thinking about um, people as disabled and really understand that it's the environment that disables people. And when we embrace that concept, then it really empowers us as a profession to go much further than we've gone today at getting the design right. Yeah, it was just last year I was fortunate to attend the Equity Summit put on by PolicyLink, and I learned the term the curb cut effect, and it's never left me. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the idea that 
you know, um, curb cuts at intersections were put in for a very specific population, but they benefit all kinds of people. So if we can take that idea of improvements that have unintended and wide-reaching benefits, then that's a better world. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I kind of live by the mantra that we want to be creating environments that um, help people live as independently as possible for as much of their lifespan as possible. So how are we designing our neighborhood streets for children? You know, if you look on the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's website and it talks about pedestrian safety in children, by around age seven, we're cognitively able to basically judge the speed of traffic and kind of navigate streets, but only if they're designed properly. So how do we make sure that those designs embrace children's independence? Um, and the same goes for the other end of the lifespan when we may not be able to dash across the street quite as fast, judging the speed of traffic, our reaction time might be a, a little bit off. Are those streets safe? And are we um, setting that up um, in the right way? And, and currently, we're not. If you look at the, the data points, um, older adults are much, much overrepresented in fatal traffic crashes in part because of their just the physical reaction to being involved in a crash. But we need to slow traffic. We need to design better. We, we need to, you know, put attention into making sure that our sidewalks and crosswalks are well-maintained. Fear of falling is huge in the minds of many uh, frail individuals. But they should not be limited to staying home because of a fear of falling. They also still need and want to get out and socialize in the community and be part of that community. So let's make sure that our community environments are not disabling folks like that. So true. And I think it's only when the theoretical becomes personal that that um, people are ready to make a change. I live in a, an intergenerational home, and when people in my neighborhood don't shovel the sidewalks, all of a sudden our two children that walk to school every day, we, we don't have a choice. We have to drive them so people can understand the interrelatedness. Same thing with my in-laws who are mid-70s, you know, it makes a difference of whether or not they get out and do the things they normally do. So there's policies, regulations, um, design practices that can all improve this situation. There's also this idea of MOS or mobility as a service. I'm wondering if you can uh, explain that basic concept and then some of the work you're doing around universal mobility as a service. Well, sure. Um, mobility as a service really has the ultimate goal of providing a comprehensive package of transportation services that are so convenient to use that they could even replace personal vehicle ownership. Um, there are numerous players right now in this space. It's still niche, but you see folks such as large transit authorities, LA Metro, who is building a Moz platform. There are ride-hailing companies. Uber has declared that they want to build uh, Uber as a service. Um, even car manufacturers like Ford are getting into this line of business. And I think there's a huge risk that we as professionals across the board, not just planners, but others, 
don't necessarily think about the needs of people with special needs and designing our transportation systems. And yet there's still a huge opportunity because if we really are moving toward creating a transportation system in our communities that's not dependent on driving everywhere, that potentially opens up a huge opportunity for people who don't drive today and who may not drive in the future. And in fact, one of the things I point out in my presentations is that a third of our nation's population doesn't drive. And yet when you look at how we go about our planning, most of the emphasis in transportation planning has been on moving cars and people in cars. Um, but we really need to look much broader at how do we address everyone in the community's needs. Another uh, concern I have with my profession is that as transportation planners, we've tended to relegate planning for people with special needs to human service agencies. And while these individuals in other agencies are doing the very best that they can, they're very committed to providing good service, oftentimes they have a better understanding of the, the human component of providing that service, but they're also very under-resourced relative to transportation budgets, as limited as we think they are, and they're not planners. And so we need to make sure our profession is thinking about everyone in the community as we put our plans together and making sure that it's, it's addressing everyone's needs. Yeah, I don't I want that stat to really stick with people, one-third of the U.S. population. So that probably includes children, people who choose not to drive, and folks you know, for whom driving is not a possibility. But that's a significant bit of information that I think gets overlooked. Yes. So included within that one-third of our nation's population that does not drive, there's one in five people over the age of 65, uh, many people with disabilities, um, children, many low-income people who can't afford the upkeep of a vehicle, or simply others who just choose not to drive. And yet so much of the emphasis on transportation has been around how do we move vehicles, how do we um, address congestion. While these are very real issues and they need to be addressed, um, if you don't have transportation to the doctor or to a job, that to you as an individual is just as big of an issue as congestion may be to me and trying to get to work on time. So for a typical older adult, how would their life be improved? What would it look like if we could achieve universal mobility as a service? So I think what universal mobility as a service can provide us is the opportunity to have travel choices beyond driving. And that, of course, is so important to people who are not able to drive or who choose not to drive. And the universal emphasis on universal mobility as a service is really trying to look at how do we bridge and bring together the demand responsive transportation services that we have to serve older adults, people with disabilities, into this larger mobility as a service platform. Um, there are folks who may receive subsidy to get to the doctors because they are on Medicaid who might be perfectly able to get there for a follow-up appointment or a preventive appointment on a scooter or on an electric bicycle that's part of this system. And 
And yet, right now, with our, the way we've done our non-emergency medical transportation planning, you pretty much have to go through a broker, and those options don't exist. But why not? Why not open all of these options up? So I think for, you know, again, for older adults, it really doesn't need to be such a chore to find transportation. One of the challenges is just knowing about what transportation services exist in the community. Um, the other challenge is having to schedule a trip on a vehicle 24 to 48 hours in advance. Another challenge is that that vehicle can only get you to the county boundary because the next county over is not helping to pay for that service. And Mobility as a service offers the potential to break down these barriers that have been in place for decades and that certainly many planners have been working on, um, but I think that we now have the opportunity to apply technology in new ways to help address some of those institutional barriers. So you mentioned LA Metro. Are there other agencies, municipalities, or partners who are leading the way on this effort? Well, I think there is a lot of players who are, well, some are doing a bit more than dabbling. I was going to say dabbling, but I think no one that I'm aware of is doing the full vision of universal mobility as a service. But where there's some really exciting developments, I think, are in the side of using technology to create more efficiencies within human services transportation, the demand response or dial-a-ride type of services. I went to Denmark this past October on a study tour to look at how they apply technology to their services, and it's really quite impressive. They have been able to get that pre-reservation time down to just a two-hour advance reservation. They run um, service nationwide, um, so it doesn't stop at a jurisdictional boundary. Um, And they've really involved the private sector by the the public sector coordinating services and being the hub with the kind of the dispatch of the messages to put people into vehicles, et cetera, but all of the actual services being run by anywhere from small mom-and-pop taxicab companies to larger bus companies. So they've got over 550 uh, private sector providers who are participating in the system and who are linked in the system through what's called a common data specification. So they don't all have the same software. It doesn't require a small operation to buy a $200,000 software package to do routing and scheduling that they can use what they would otherwise use, but it it allows them to communicate all these uh, ride messages back and forth. And one development here in the United States, the Transit Cooperative Research Program will be releasing a study along with code that is based on this Scandinavian model to bring that level of sophistication to the United States, which which is unbelievably it's something we're lacking. So one way I think about good planning is providing choice. And I think this is another example of where AARP is primarily considering older adults and the choices they make or the choices they should have, but really benefit all kinds of people. 
And this is where mobility, housing, and quality of life really come together. So can you talk a little bit more about your background in transportation and, and how the work you do now does intersect with issues of housing and quality of life? So my background as a planner, I started off as a in the consulting world on federal and state transportation projects, uh, particularly NEPA-type environmental assessment projects. And then I moved to local planning, where I was a comprehensive planner and also a transportation planner helping to develop the long-range comprehensive plan, including the transportation component of that plan, did some bike ped planning, and then moved to a regional, more transit-oriented organization that really for Northern Virginia, NVTC, it managed the gas tax dollars and funneled them to each of the localities payments to Metro to help fund the the Metro system and the DC area, the Virginia portion. But as part of that role, I was looking at more at regional planning issues. And that is when I did a study on older adults and land use patterns and their transportation choices. And that was just an absolutely fascinating study because what we found is that uh, the design and compactness, the walkability of communities mattered as much to older adults. And, And for that particular survey and research, we had interviewed adults 75 and older and we interviewed them across Northern Virginia and then divided the results. We had over 1,600 data points from different people and then sorted that by whether they lived in a kind of a walkable mixed-use, uh, transit-oriented development or town center, a more suburban area or even more exurban area. And what we found is that they took, I think, something like twice the number of transit trips Um, But what was most profound from that is that 20% of their trips were walking just to get around their neighborhood and to get, you know, go to the bank, to the library, to the grocery store, et cetera, um, compared to older people living in suburban areas, which is only 8% of their trips by walking. So it does make a a huge difference. Um, Sometimes we take that for granted. Um, But I think planners are in a very unique position to understand and translate what is in the built environment to how the social environment and the activity levels, et cetera, may translate um, into people's quality of life. And expanding on that a bit, I'm very interested in AARP as an organization. Your official mission statement, I think is the right word, is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that empowers people to choose how they live as they age. So on the one hand, you're, you're representing a particular demographic, but everyone, unless something terrible happens, is going to age. So it's broad and particular at the same time. I'm wondering how your work incorporates issues of equity and inclusion. So I think, you know, in terms of AARP's work on equity and inclusion, we certainly recognize that there's intersectionality with age and race and age and income, age and gender, et cetera. And so we're looking at the, you know, in our representation of older adults and really people of all ages as there's not a lot of homogeneity that 
we're very diverse as a society and as communities, and we really need to delve deeper to understand what the the wants and the the desires of individuals are. You know, we're doing more and more work to understand and recognize um, historic disparities, health disparities that currently exist. At the same time, we also recognize that the nation is having many conversations right now about equity and inclusion, and so many of those conversations really just focus in on race um, and income, et cetera, and age doesn't often come into play in those conversations. So we also are trying to, to insert that as part of the overall conversation because we cannot be a truly equitable society until we address the age bias, age discrimination that exists. So true, and a good reminder that there's still a lot of work to do, and it's going to take collaboration to get there. For people who are interested in being a part of that, I wonder if you have any resources you'd like to share, um, things people should check out, or how they can connect with AARP. Sure. I highly recommend that folks, if you haven't checked out our Livability Index, you do so. You can find that at aarp.org forward slash index. Um, also, we have a great website, aarp.org slash livable, where you can find a tremendous number of resources on different topics, but all somehow related to the topic of community and livability. And then my own work in on the future of transportation, talking about universal mobility as a service, you can find at aarp.org forward slash future of transportation. So... And in terms of communicating with me, um, my Twitter handle is at Jana Linet. Well, Jana, I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for the information and resources you provided and for the reminder that for those of us who impact the built environment, we need to plan for the entire lifespan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.